You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What a dump. I devoted 25 years to working in the booth, and I loved it. And to see it go away, it made me depressed. I'm rapidly becoming one of the very last of my kind. The last dinosaur who survived the meteor. You know, looking around, going, where is everybody? That's the attitude you get a lot of these old-time people. But it's wrong. They have to look for the positive in it. Evolution. Progress. New technology. It's not even the new thing anymore. It's just the thing. You have to show your movies that way. It's the standard, you know? It kills me that nobody wants film anymore. It kills me. Because it's beautiful. Nothing else is film. That was the peak. That was the best times. Best times of my life. And then it went downhill from then. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Chris Bricklemeyer. Hello. It's great to be back. Always glad to have you, sir. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we'll be talking about a recent documentary, Dying of the Light. That is not the Paul Schrader, Nicolas Cage film. I'm sorry if you saw the title and you downloaded it thinking we were going to be talking about another Nick Cage movie. No, it's uh, actually a history of movie projection from the nascent days of the cinema to the present and chris is in the movie yeah a lot less than i thought i would be but i'm there i was very surprised when he showed up i'm like wait a second i know that guy i had a i had a whole interview segment but my guess is seeing after seeing the finished film i didn't a lot of the stuff i said other people had previously said and then maybe my views on digital didn't fit the narrative as well it's possible but I don't know. The director is a super nice guy, so no hard feelings. Yeah, he is. He's very, very nice. He came out to Detroit a couple months ago for the Free Film Festival. Actually, I guess it was just last month, and did a Q&A with him there. And really, yeah, really very nice guy. How long have you been in Projectionist, Chris? My first solo threaded film was the very first showing of Spider-Man. 10 o'clock on May 3rd, 2002. Very precise. I was just trying to think of the year. My top loop was way too big. So were you using platters? Yep. Yep. Um, three platter system. Another theater I went to later has, uh, they had a couple of five platters, 20 screens. Only one of them was set up opposite of the other ones. Um, so that was a, a nightmare to thread when you get used to moving in one certain direction with muscle memory. But yeah, 20 screens and we could have up to 40 movies. I can't complain about it because it was that theater was probably the most fun I've had with the people I worked with. Now, how old were you when you were working there? Because you and I are like, I think we're like three days apart in age. Jeez, I'm going to have to do math now. 2002, so 30 when I started. But I was, I started working in my first theater, which is where I got like into the first projection booth I ever got into 
I was it was uh, I was 17, so it was 1989. There was one one screen was um the old changeover system, and the other two were platters. Yeah, first projection booth I was ever in, I was probably about the same age. And I have to admit, I'm a wannabe projectionist. I've never actually projected film. So the whole name of the show, everything, complete lie. It took how many episodes for you to finally admit that? Yeah, that that long. But yeah, I mean, I've I've spent a lot of time in a projection booth. I've seen the guys with the big masks on and you know changing out the xenon bulbs and all that fun stuff. It got to the point in the 20 screen theater where we had to change them in between shows because the company that bought the company I worked for, they really didn't put the money out to have the spares in the building. So we had to change them when they blew up. Yeah. So cleaning out the projector and changing the lamp and then balancing it by eye because you didn't have time to use a light meter or, or a test loop. Um, in the 15 to 20 minutes between shows, we got we got pretty fast at that. <laughs> and now at the uh, with the IMAX theater, the um, the Dome Omnimax, it's uh, minimum two hours to change the lamp with two people. It's it's very complicated. Yeah, IMAX. I've seen documentaries about IMAX film before, and just it's a whole other beast. Yeah, it's a lot of the it's it's got a lot of similarities. You know, film moves through a, a feed unit off a platter, through the projector. You got your shutter. You have a sort of a virtual intermittent sprocket in there um, with the way the uh, the rolling loop goes through. But it's 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 the same principle. It's just bigger and faster. If I remember correctly, doesn't IMAX film actually go the opposite way? It runs um, horizontal instead of vertical. Right. Which always just confused the hell out of me, because I'm like, well, how would that even work? I mean, but I suppose it would just run sideways instead of running top to bottom. Yeah, and the image is just printed on the side instead of up and down like you'd have on 35. Yeah, it it was kind (laughs) of, I had to step back for a minute. I'm very curious, since you were a part of this documentary, part of the making of it, you know, tangentially so, but you know, the, you were in the the film and they're talking to, is, is that obviously he's one of your coworkers. He's my boss. Yeah. He's the manager of the department. I can't tell you the last time he threaded a show, but, but go ahead and talk to him about being a project. Now he knows a lot more about uh, what's going on inside the industry with the dome and digital conversions than I did. So it makes more sense because that's, that's where they focused with him. So what did you think of the movie? I liked it. I I can't say that I didn't like it because how many times, then this is from a purely egotistical standpoint right here. How many times does someone come and say, Hey, I want to make a documentary about your awesome job. Oh, okay, fine. Although when I watched it the first time, I just wanted to see, well, does he use any of the footage (laughs) that I'm in? Because I'm going to be narcissistic about it. And the second time I watched it and I just focused purely on, you know, the story he was telling, it was, it was, it was kind of sad. It was kind of depressing, but that's exactly what it is when you're, the skills you have are essentially replaced. I did feel bad for, for some of the people in the movie, in the documentary, because I, as a, as a theater employee, I would run the booth, do the schedule for that, balance that budget and 
get supplies, all that stuff. But still, I would be downstairs like one one quarter. I would do the schedule every week for the employees. So regardless of what happened up in the booth, I still had a job to do downstairs. Yeah, most of the guys that I worked with when I was at the the Star Theater back in the early 90s, they were projectionists, but they were projectionist concessionaires, projectionist managers. I think we might have had one guy who was a full-time projectionist. And I can't even say he was a full-time projectionist because he would just, you know, he would work a shift and that was but that was the only thing he would do was be in the booth or occasionally come down to the manager's kiosk and he was kind of an asshole so we just <laughs> really liked it when he was up in the booth instead. Yeah. The less we saw of Joe Toth, the better. There are nice, personable, funny people, and then there are the ones that you meet, and you're like, well, no wonder you work up there. I've usually had very good luck with projectionists, yeah. though, I will say that. Yeah, yeah. One of, the, uh, one of the first ones that worked in the first theater I worked in, Bill, he ended up after the union, because the, the, there, there's all, a whole other documentary you could do about the projectionist unions. He would do a couple of days in our theater, a couple of days at Boston Common, um, because I believe he had the most seniority out of all of the the area union guys. So it was actually kind of nice to, at the end, because he was close to retiring, I believe. So uh, I'm moving up from supervisor to manager to presentation manager. They used to call it booth manager for AMC, but when you abbreviate that, it kind of stinks. So now then it was PM instead of so working next to him, it was kind of it kind of brought it full circle. Like you showed me how this used to work and now we're building prints together kind of thing. That was nice. I still felt bad about what how the union was handled and I kind of got into being a projectionist kind of as a scab, I guess, which is kind of the only dark Mark, but we handpicked people that really cared because in in the in the film they do talk about how one of the guys says, and now the candy girls are doing it, and I'm like, oh, you haven't been downstairs in like decades, have you? There are no candy girls anymore. But yeah, with digital, it is just programming, and nobody watches the start of the film. We would take our schedule and and we would have four shows for each each house so so just about 80 shows per shift so you thread as far ahead as possible so you can start the film get make sure it's framed properly because it, it'll always be off a little bit if you're rushing <laughs> um, and then you know you may have to tap the focus if the front of the of the projector swings open like on the strong ones that could jiggle the lens a little bit and you lose a little bit of the, the sharpness but if you are threading starting threading starting you're you you may even as i've seen happen a lot thread the wrong movie or not check your focus or the curtains don't move the masking doesn't move to the right um aspect ratio all kinds of nightmare stuff yeah you forget to put on the anamorphic adapter so everybody in a few good men is really tall and skinny oh yeah that happened to me once at a dollar show. And the thing that cracked me up was I seemed to be the only one that was bothered by it. Looking around the audience, like, are you people going to do anything? 
like all the old movies on like uh, your, your your UHF channels when it goes to credits because they would expand out to the sides. They had to, you know, give you that tall and thin version or that pop when you would go from the nice letterbox credits at the beginning of the film and then boom, sometimes it would ease out. But most of the time it was the next cut after the director's name would be boom, full frame. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad the TVs are shaped differently now. Yeah, I haven't had to do like the presentation that I used to do at the video store with like the little cardboard cutouts talking about this is your television, this is Last of the Mohicans, and this is how it would look. <laughs> when I worked at Blockbuster, I used the old Topps widescreen trading cards, and I would just I would I cut one and I had the other one, and I'm like, this is your square TV. This is why you want the other one. The bars cut off their heads. I'm like, show me. But I'm losing half the picture. Yeah. No. I should only have to pay $1.50 for this tape. <laughs> Shut up and get out of my store. Uh, so much fun. Yeah, it cracks me up these days when the movie starts and there might be something wrong. You know, the house lights stay on, yep. the movie's out of focus or whatever, and these idiots in the theater start yelling, focus or lights. And I'm just like, there's nobody back there. No, not even close. And they, they won't be able to hear you regardless. Oh, there was a couple, there were a couple times, um, when I would go and see something with a crowd, uh, which I tried not to do because when you can run them for yourself, you know, that's always best, but like yeah, I sit there and like the, 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 um, subtitles would be cut off halfway and I'm like, somebody has to notice this. I know who's running the shows today and then it wouldn't get fixed and I would just get up, go up there, fix it myself. And come back down. And they'd see me and they'd say, why are you up here? I'm like, number nine. Oh, I didn't notice. I was too busy. I'm like, I, I got you. It's all right. You're allowed this one. I went to see one of those horrible Matrix sequels. I think it was the last one. The screen was really nice and sharp and in focus in the middle of the screen. Oh. And dark and blurry at the edges. Ugh. And I went and complained. And... The people in the lobby, the the manager, whoever, just did not care. Ugh. I'm like, you got to be kidding me! Not didn't even care enough to give me a pass to come back to their shitty theater oh, again. And that doesn't cost them anything. No, and you're more likely to buy concession stuff if you have a free pass. That's why I would give them out like they were, you know, like candy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Here you go. Sorry, the film broke. Here you go. Here's you know, go over to the door. Just give them passes on their way out. We when we saw Force Awakens, uh, for me, as you know, that's a huge deal. So it was the first show. And when after the film, it bothered me, but not enough to make me get up and um, and go have it corrected. Because if you've cleaned the lens, but you haven't like polished it, I used to tell everybody after you put the lens cleaner on a cold lens, you can't do it in between shows. You have to polish it to get everything off. Otherwise, you have a film and it it just washes out the color and you get a glow around stuff and and the pork glass wasn't clean. Like every every May, we would take the pork glass out and we would clean them and that would last through till Oscar season. And then, you know, because when you have the big movies coming in, you have to make sure everything's good. But now that it can be programmed from downstairs you know, I end up going to see Paranorman 
and the film doesn't start for 20 minutes. And then when they do, they show a rated R gangster trailer in the beginning because they're going to show me the wrong movie. And I know it's happening. <laughs> and I'm just like, all right, here we go. You have to check it. Yeah, yeah. The thing that probably doesn't happen anymore, but I loved it when it would happen at the at the theater where I was working, was when there were problems with like the aperture plate, or where there were <laughs> problems with like you know just taking the, the if the masking was wrong, or even if the framing is wrong. I don't even imagine these days that they bother with that extra image on the tops and sides, you know, obviously I, I don't think they're doing an optical soundtrack anymore on the left-hand side. Right. Right. Yeah. It would be all digital on the, on the, it's surface. just gotta be matted now. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, some theaters, if it's built in, then I think they still use it. When we installed our first one at the 20 screen, I think the masking was still, it was a, it was a top curtain instead of sides uh, just because of the way the theater was set up and it would, it would still go. But you can, I mean, with the digital image, you can have a nice sharp edge and not need masking, really. But once it's, I mean, it should, and it should always be in frame, though. That should never be an issue. There was something wrong with the aperture when we went to see, oh, God, it was was a, a midnight screening for the employees. And I think, actually, no, it was the framing was off. And I could see the stands and the cables. (laughs) <laughs> it was one of those horrible sequels to Scanner. It was like one of the Scanner Cop type movies or Scanner 5 or something. And I just watched the whole movie watching for the equipment on the on the ground. And I remember what there was a Spike Lee movie. I think it was with Ed Norton. I can't remember if it was 25th Hour. I think that might have been it. <laughs> and it was amazing. At one point... There is either a bad splice or a bad real splice, and all of a sudden, everything got thrown out of frame, right? And it's this scene at a park, and there's two characters that are talking, and I'm looking, and I'm just like, something is really wrong here. What is wrong? Like, my brain couldn't (laughs) process it. And then finally, I realized there's a third person in the shot Uh laying on their back with a microphone (laughs) pointing from one actor to the other <laughs> as they're saying their line i couldn't believe it i was like you gotta be fucking kidding that's me. it yeah I, I never knew that that would have even gotten caught on film i thought it would have just been you know like when you look through the fucking camera i thought it, that guy would have not been there right but no sure enough he was there and i'm like this is nuts yeah. man yeah <laughs> And then I'm like, I want to see the whole movie. I want to see every movie like that. I want to <laughs> give me that option, you know? Yeah. I, I remember the first time I saw, I saw the, uh, I, it was uh, Back to the Future. It was just framed too low. So every interior shot had a microphone in it. <laughs> Fortunately, I had seen the movie before. The tricky thing is if the film just chews itself up, jumps off the roller. I mean, weird things happen. And and you're not going to get a replacement and you've sold out shows of, let's say, the born identity. You have to get a little creative with it. So there was a scene and I still haven't watched this movie because of what I had to do to the print. There's a scene where he wakes up on a park bench and I believe it's two Russian 
uh, maybe police officers that wake him up. I think I know exactly the scene you're talking about. Yeah. And he fights them and then he's standing there. It's like, it's like a, there's a cut after the fight and he's standing there and the two of them are on the ground. The fight part got chewed up. Whoops. So instead of a jarring jump cut into the middle of a fight, the, the fight was literally like two seconds. So it was like, it was, it was just like 48 frames. So I said, all right, let's try this and we'll do it for one show and we'll see if it works. From the point where he, the, the first frame of the fight is where we cut, where he throws the, where he starts throwing the first punch or kick or whatever. I, I blocked it out of my head. We cut from there to the end of the fight. So it's the Russian guys waking him up and the next scene we cuts to him standing over unconscious bodies. <laughs> and I thought based on the movie, that's probably the most elegant thing we could have done. So when people got this on DVD, <laughs> they're like, oh, extra scene. Martha, did you get the uncut version? <laughs> he actually fights those two. I don't remember seeing this. But that was that was the best choice because it, it really did matter. I had a bunch of people and we, we, we really did care for being a bunch of basically union replacement scabs. Every show, I, I remember like no matter what movie somebody goes to, there's there's someone in that audience where it's a first, you know, the first movie my wife and I saw way back when we were in grade school was Fletch. Who, who would think like a two o'clock in the afternoon show of Fletch is important. Right. So I would tell everybody every show is as important as the other one. This, this, um, this show of who's your caddy (laughs) is a first date movie for somebody. And it is just as important as return of the King across the hall. We, I mean, you got to treat them the same. They're not, <laughs> but you have to. And I had good people and, and we, we all really cared. A lot of people setting up, um, trailer programs would cut right at the first frame of the green band. And, and it was this jarring jump. I took everybody's and I, and I, and I, I just put together because they send you like a million trailers for every movie you get. And I put put it together the way they did it and the way that I think it should be done. You just go further back into the black and you cut. And the trailer, the first trailer will fade down. It'll go to black. It'll come up. And it's just, it just flows a little more properly than, in, than a, a jump from the last credit to another green. Because you need a second to breathe between the two. Exactly, especially the way that that these previews are being cut these days. Yeah, yeah. We had a rule when it was AMC. I'm sorry, when it was Lowe's before it was AMC. Our rule was on the really big summer stuff, so like Spider-Man Two, Revenge of the Sith, that kind of stuff. The maximum amount of trailers we could do was six, and normally we went with five. So that's about ten minutes. We do ten to ten to twelve minutes of um of previews. And at the time, I mean, with the big stuff, they were good trailers. There was hardly any, any stuff where it's like, Oh, you're going to do this again. Right. I love trouble. But most of the time it was four. Uh, but then when a different company that I had stated a little further back there, um, I don't want to give them any publicity. Uh, all of a sudden it's like eight trailers. Oh yeah. Yeah. Pre-show yeah. And, a two hour movie is now two and a half hours. I don't know about the lows that you worked at. I worked for Lokes, which was kind of like a 
branch off of Lowe's. Okay. And it was L O E K S, I believe. Hmm. Um, and it was uh, the, it was a family here in Michigan, and they kind of broke from the dad, and they were doing their own theater. It was this guy and his wife, Jim and Barry, and uh, Barry was a woman's name. Okay. They had this thing that the times that are printed in the paper are the times that the movie starts. Mm. So the pre-show starts 15 minutes before the movie. Right. And that was the rule. And I thought that was beautiful. Yes. Because you knew yeah. a one fifteen was going to start at one fifteen. Right. So yeah. that was nice. As long as you advertise it that way, yes. I, I've seen people don't have a problem with that. Right. If you all of a sudden change it, you're going to have problems. You, you kind of have to start up that way. And and go from there, and, and you can't change for after that point. Right, yeah, and that was their thing. Mm. And they didn't do, like, this was before, like, the pre-packaged pre-shows. You know, you just saw 15 minutes worth of shit that is going to show up on your television set in a month. None of that kind of stuff. It was slides that were going on in between, and they were scenes of Michigan and stuff, mm. these beautiful pictures. And then occasionally they would sell an ad. So you'd get like the local dentist or whatever, but yeah. nice little slideshow going on. Yeah. I remember changing out slides, lots and lots of slides. Occasionally an upside down one. Yeah. You know, yeah. Or it's, or it's backwards or you just don't take that one out. So you're showing, um, you're showing a slide for antivirus five years after it was out of the theater. We are very far afield from the documentary in a way. I think we're talking more the modern day projection type things. One of the things that I appreciated when we were doing the platter system, and you might have been able to do this with you know, the old uh, changeover, but I doubt it. I don't think you could. Was We would have a thing, and I'm sure you had the same thing. You could put it like in the middle of the hallway, mm -hmm. and you could feed another projector off of the first projector. Oh, yeah. You could change. Hey, we got the big summer blockbuster coming out. It's sold out in theater eight. Let's open up another 180 seats and show it in theater seven as well. Yep. The last one I remember doing was one of the Harry Potters because we had theater nine, 10 and 11 were all, I think they were 375 for the seating. So they were, they were a decent size house for a 20 screen, you know, mall theater. And uh, we would put it in nine. And then we would see it, how much would sell out. Then we would open 10, then we would open 11, and then we'd interlock that. Problem with that is Theater 11 didn't want to talk to the other two projectors. So it didn't know when we would start it. And you can't push all the buttons. You can't have three people push and start all at the same time because 11 will pull and that will pull on... 10 which will pull on nine and you'll just destroy everything so <laughs> there's three of us upstairs and we had the lethal weapon talk before <laughs> do you go on three yeah right one two three and then i called the name of the guy on 11 no nine nine had to go first i was on 11 so i call him i'm like you start that you watch the tree with the the dancing roller and when it hits the halfway point, because we brought them all the way up tight, it hits the halfway point, then 10 could start. And then when that, those two balance out, which was like a second or two, then we start the other one. And then we all just kind of 
bless the projectors exorcist style walk away and hope everything's okay and it ran fine but that came after five years of being up there and learning all the quirks if we did that if we walked in like they were doing with the uh like a 70 millimeter the tarantino roadshow thing and uh, we weren't familiar with those projectors at all we would have just destroyed the print probably pulled the projectors you know out of alignment from (laughs) from the screen but we were we were confident, cocky, and a little stupid all at the same time, which I think is in the job description. The thing that gets me, though, is I don't – well, I imagine there's got to be a way to hack the system now to be able to play from one projector to another. But it definitely can't be as easy as it once was. I mean, the whole idea of these digital prints now, the D – what do they call them? DCPs? I think so i i only had very limited access uh to one projector back in like 2008 and since then it's been filmed but from what i understand it's all loaded into a server and it may be multiple copies of the same file in there i'm not sure like for redundancy but you can like at the drop of a hat change it i remember talking to a guy who worked for alamo And he was also running, I don't know if it was the Fantastic Fest or what it was, but like was involved with a festival. And he would get these, yeah, DCPs or DLPs, I can't remember. And and he was saying that they were very difficult to use. At least this is a few years ago, so I don't know if they've made improvements since then. But he was saying that you couldn't really test the prints or test the files because that would count as like a showing yeah and these things were locked down to only be allowed to be played so many times because now there's such a it's it's this catch-22 where people are so concerned or the industry is so concerned about bootlegging that they've locked down all this stuff so it's like okay now you can only show this you know in this theater or whatever how many times and all this kind of stuff you know because Obviously, what we were doing, showing movies in multiple theaters, probably slightly illegal somehow because we're, I don't know, not you're showing things in multiple screens. People are still making money. Yeah, I think as long as the ticket sales are reported properly, then it, then it should be fine. I know that um, when they set our server up inside the one projector that we had, they sent us the server for the Framingham Theater. And they sent Framingham ours. But after they were installed, it was too much work to take it apart. We would have each theater would have lost a day in that in that house. So when they would send us the keys, the USB, they would send us a USB with a with a code on it that would unlock the print for a certain amount of time. They would send us the one for my theater for Liberty Tree, but they needed to send us Framingham's <laughs> because that was the server we had. They could actually email us the code and we could just load it onto a stick, which was fine. But they would give it to us for like just seven days at a time. And it's like, Weird. it's like, this is, you've given us transformers as good or bad, whatever. We're going to be showing that longer than a week. And they would never respond on time. The code had to be sent multiple times. And then this was early on. Now it's definitely. They've they've kind of gotten all their protocols in place, it seems, from uh, the people I know that still work with that kind of thing. But yeah, they only need to send one hard drive. It's strange because – so here they are 
so concerned about bootlegging and you know reporting the right things and how many times the file is played or how many how long the key is alive and all these kind of things. But at the same time, it seems like bootlegging is more rampant now than ever. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, um, do you want to see Zootopia or do you want to wait three weeks and it'll show up on a torrent site? Yeah. And it'll be a pristine copy. Yeah. Usually there with uh, Korean, Korean or, subtitles. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard. I have heard that as well. <laughs> I'm beginning to appreciate the Korean language a little bit more. <laughs> I will say that sounds more like an issue from the from the ones I've seen that are Korean rips. Those seem to be shown on TV. Really? It, I don't know because it they look too good to be a recorded screen. Oh yeah, definitely. Either they've definitely. figured out a way to rip the file and and decode it, or I don't know. I don't know how they're doing it, but. Right. I, I know I'm not doing it, so I'm I'm not going to get in trouble for that. Yeah, I know I have an IP masker so that Comcast <laughs> won't know, and yeah, yeah, and I know I'm not going to spend any money to see the boss. Oh, so. well, yeah. <laughs> the movie doesn't focus on digital projection too much, and. With, uh, I talked to Peter Flynn after the screening in Detroit, and we were talking a little bit about digital projection because it's interesting how movies or events can kind of force things. You know, the whole idea of the hateful eight, which you mentioned earlier, kind yeah. of forcing the hand of people. And that is a scene in the film, you know, the whole restoration of these 70 millimeter projectors and shipping them out to all these places. Yes. But it, it now, you probably have a better memory of this than I do, but I seem to remember when it came to digital, what really forced the hand was the Phantom Menace. I remember that there were three scenes filmed digitally for Phantom Menace as an experiment, mm -hmm. but the projection side, I remember them advertising an added or changed scene at the end of mm -hmm. Clones. That was the first digital film I saw in a in a theater. Okay, um, but it definitely was Lucas that pushed it. Well, Lucas, for better or for worse, but he definitely did a great job when it came to sound oh, and yeah. the whole idea that THX approved theaters. Yep, I worked in a few of those. They were they were fantastic. And you had to <laughs> like, you had to make sure everything checked out and they had like an expert that would come in and yep. make sure all the equipment was in place and all this kind of stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was kind of a similar thing when it came to the digital stuff, but that seemed to happen really quick. Mm. Yeah. And I remember, God, th this dates me. I remember seeing in the newspaper, <laughs> you know, now in digital projection or this will be shown digitally. Right. And that was the selling point for people. It was kind of like Cinerama back in the in the day kind of thing. Yeah. And it's like, oh, wow, I get to see this digital. It kind of blew up in Peter Jackson's face when it was like, oh, I get to see this in 48 frames. Yeah, I kind of wish I, I made the time to go see that because I will never see it now because nobody's going to do it i give him credit for trying but right it just doesn't sound like a special effects heavy movie is right for that for that type of thing well it doesn't seem like a costume drama set in one room would be the ideal thing for a 70 millimeter film either well yeah that's a whole nother <laughs> show though i think i did appreciate just from me being the pessimistic asshole that i am 
the little blurb at the bottom that says it was not a box office success. Right. And, yeah. and part of me see, okay, I may be jumping ahead, but I fully embrace this change because projectionists are basically gone. We're not going to have anybody in the booth that, that scratches a print that it, it's out of order. It's out of frame. It will, it will look and sound good as long as they show us the right film. In, in theory, which came first, the digital projection or the loss of the projectionist? Oh, definitely the loss of the projectionist. So the projectionists are going away as digital is coming in. Yeah, just about. It's almost like they knew what was going to happen. And then they took, uh, they took advantage of that. The midnight projectionists. Yeah. But I think, uh, hatefully, while it looked really nice, I can't, I can't deny the cinematography. If you're trying to revive a format that's being phased out and a, and an aspect ratio that's been dead for what, two decades, at least a rated R movie isn't the right thing. I don't know. I not a huge fan of the person, but I definitely admire his passion. Well, I admire, and obviously he did this with the Weinsteins behind him, but the ability to actually have theaters change. Because I will admit, yeah. when I saw the list of theaters where the Hateful Eight was showing in Michigan, allegedly in 70 millimeter, I was just like, get out of town. There's no way that the Livonia 20 is showing this thing in 70 millimeters. They were the first to dump all their projectors and just switch over to digital. There's no way. But so I'm in a quandary when it comes to this whole thing because Tarantino, aka the Weinsteins, are forcing the hand of all of these different theaters. If you want our film, you're going to have to get these 70 millimeter projectors installed. Right. Okay. And these theaters have buku bucks. You know, the this is the fucking AMC Livonia 20 that I'm talking about, not, you know, Joe and Shirley's Livonia 20. <laughs> so, okay, they'll switch over. Meanwhile, there are two perfectly good 70-millimeter projectors at the Redford Theater and at the Michigan Theater. Mm. Now, wouldn't it have been nice if the Redford Theater was making all that Hateful Eight money and the Michigan Theater were making all this Hateful Eight money? Now, this is the Michigan Theater that's in Ann Arbor. It's not the one that's actually in the documentary that was now turned into a parking garage. Oh, okay. But wouldn't that have been nice if these art house theaters that still support the format would have gotten the prints rather than the AMC theaters who go, oh, sure, yeah, we'll, we'll be turncoats. We'll go ahead and put in these 70 millimeter projectors. Yeah. And who's going to use them again? They're, they're not going to see uh, Frank, um, the, the person I do, um, are you serious with? We met at the theater in 2002 and um, we've obviously kept in touch since they fired me and um <laughs> i got fired from the from the lows too so don't worry I, about it. I i i got i got fired from a general cinema theater four separate times if there were real badges of honor like that's a that's like a real life xbox achievement right there oh yeah we looked at each other when we saw this announcement and he 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 gobbles up tarantino stuff because he's he's a writer and he loves the storytelling aspect of his stuff not to uh, we don't need to ringo lamb this um <laughs> sorry um no problem my mouth is closed i'm not going to bring up the rebel or anything no because like we so. would both just be on the same page we looked at each other and we're like who the fuck is going to show these who's going right. to run the projectors 
And I do, I do know one person that um, helped uh, splice all of the prints together. I mean, she's totally competent and knew exactly what she was doing, which was good. But when you send it out, you can't have one guy there every day for 13 hours a day. David, that's in the in the documentary. I actually he spent a, a little bit of time at my theater, um, and we were we talked about all like he is he he's he's a good spokesman for the the entire like workforce. <laughs> he he knows way more than anybody else that I've ever met, and uh, he's always had seventy millimeter capability at his theater, and he's the only one that can do it. And he was literally going to be there to start every show. But I can't imagine an AMC where that's possible. And and especially considering they were talking about like like it's almost like they were looking at this 70 millimeter stuff as like a vinyl resurgence. Right. And if that happens, I'm like, if that happens, then people should be knocking down my door. Right. Exactly. But if they had to said, oh, we're going to do a 70 millimeter Rogue One road show, I might volunteer. But that I I don't think with the advent of very large digital TVs in the home. I don't think film has the appeal that like uh, a, a Tarantino thinks it does for the general public, not to, not to um, make all of Boston light and sounds work worth the time they put into it. All I want is good sound and decent picture. I don't care anymore if it's digital or not. Is it bright enough? Is it in focus? Yeah. Is it the right goddamn movie? <laughs> Are people quiet? Yeah. Are they yeah. looking at their fucking phones? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. There's this whole idea, and I'm glad that the, the movie does not do this. I'm glad that there isn't this whole idea of everything that is new is terrible, and we only want the old thing. I really don't get that sense from the film. It feels... Now, maybe towards the end of the film, there might be just because there is that sadness, that loss yeah. of an art form. And projecting is an art form, I definitely have to say. Mm. It's a craft. There's a, there's definitely a lot of thought that goes into it. There's the one woman who's talking about jerry-rigging projectors. and Oh, geez. Her stories, like I could have just piggybacked off of her stuff. So many stories. <laughs> I mean, because you probably have some guy in whatever year it is. I mean, you probably have... The the guy who's saying, well, this safety film is nice and everything, but the nitrate is way better. I don't care if it's going to kill me if I light a cigarette yeah, in the projection yeah. booth, but this is way better. You probably had the guy who's like, these platters are fucking right. terrible. I want the changeover system. That's where the art is, is for me to look for those cues and be able to flip from one to the other. You know, that whole yeah. line from Fight yeah. Club about, you know. You make the switch and nobody ever knows that something happened. Right. And there are probably people who are just like, oh man, fucking A, these xenon bulbs are shit, man. They it's carbon arc or nothing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So there are people, Paul Thomas Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, who are just like, Yeah, digital projection, that's terrible. And it's like well, yes and no, the film, how are you shooting this? You know, yeah. I mean, there's digital projection, there's the digital stock, quote unquote, you know, so yeah, it, it's all going to move away. And as long as there's still options for some of this stuff, mm. yeah, all right, maybe, but you know, you don't see people insisting on, well, there's no, you cannot 
play this film of mine on a platter system. I forbid it. <laughs> you cannot light this with a xenon bulb. I will only yeah. allow you to use a carbon arc. Yeah, you just don't see that anymore. No, no. <laughs> the only time, I mean, they still have, you know, the dual projector system down in... Um, in Maryland at the Charles theater and mm. one of their biggest houses, which is a really big house. I'm not sure what the count is on that, but they will, uh, every year at the Maryland film festival, which is probably one of my favorite festivals, they will do a screening of a 3d print, like an original 3d uh, change projector print. Nice. So in between the real changes, we have to stop and the lights come up <laughs> <laughs> and they have to switch out both of the projectors because those things are chained together and they uh, were running, you know, and it is just gorgeous looking at this stuff. Seeing House of Wax uh, like that. Oh, man. Uh, but, you know, that that's that's not the norm. But, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that there are people who are just like, oh, no digital projection is not for me but i have to say here we are you know just a few weeks after prince's death yeah and immediately like the day after or maybe the day he died people are announcing we're going to show purple rain oh yeah yeah uh, my friend frank he like the biggest prince fan i have ever met in my life and it was two days after he was sitting in a seat in amc watching it you can't do that with film prints i'm sorry no, not unless you're really close to the distribution warehouse. Exactly. <laughs> and these yeah. days, I mean, I'm sure that they can send stuff via the server, via the, the internets, these kind of things. Yep. Yep. And then there's even this whole idea of these, and I don't know if this is just a marketing gimmick or whatever, but this whole idea of like a satellite screening. I'm sure there's not actually a real satellite involved at all, but when you have these screenings like, you know, live riff tracks events or opera events or these kind of things, you know, that that's fantastic too. Yeah. You just can't do that. Carrot carton around a film print yeah, you know, and or that, whatever. The, the good thing about that from a downstairs, like manager's point of view is, it opens the door to so many more options rather than just, you know, what ratchet and clank and that, that is like the missing ingredient that, that I think a lot of theaters had struggled with through the, the late nineties, the early two thousands, uh, not anymore. I don't think, but it was, it was getting a more diverse crowd in there. And and throw, showing the Met stuff, I mean, or even like season premiere of Doctor Who, or I, I think I went and watched the 50th anniversary. That's what it was, the 50th anniversary special. But then there was a Battlestar Galactica, like mini event. And like I left my house to pay to see a show I could watch for free. That's That means it's a good idea. And I was a projectionist at the time. <laughs> and. And I'm paying to see shows, and I maybe I have a, a a slightly skewed view on it, but I only go to see stuff that is that that is going to be meaningful now. Like going to see Force Awakens with my six year old kids was like that was a that was like a, a, a if 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 you have a bucket list of things that you know you'll never be able to accomplish, like that's on there because I never thought it was going to happen. But I went to a theater that has since been renovated. They have those nice reclining seats where you can choose them ahead of time. And 
it's just fantastic now. It used to be the theater that you would go to to get stabbed. <laughs> but now it's but now it's it's really nice and it's 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 more of a family friendly place and they they I've only had two instances where I've had issues with the with the presentation. One was um just a thin line of pixels that would blink in and out from like three quarters of the screen. But it was amazing Spider-Man two and it blended in really well with all of the electricity on the screen. So I only saw it a little bit here and there, but, but I remember screening movies for people and they don't see the thick green scratch running down the middle of the screen. So nobody, I, I even asked my wife halfway through, I'm like, do you see that blinking line? And she's no, now I do. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Right. A hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't say that anymore because I don't want to ruin it for other people. And and it was the the cloudy windows and and lenses for uh, Force Awakens, which you know, considering I've been paying for movies since two thousand eight, I think roughly, um, that's not that's not so bad. Right. I w- I will never go back to the theater I used to work at because it's just it's just one of those things where it's like ah oh, this used to be a great place, but now it's a different company. It's all new staff. It's it's sad. It's sad when they when they when they they stop caring about the main reason people show up. It's not for the popcorn. Although I do enjoy the popcorn still after all these goddamn years. It took me a while to get back to eating popcorn. <laughs> I can understand. I definitely yeah. really can. <laughs> Especially those days where you, you're kind of broke mm. and you come in and that's your lunch. Yes. And the next day it's your lunch. Yep. And, and the day after that, <laughs> free soda is a great diet, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. At least I was running around from theater to theater, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that does help. Doing a little bit of calisthenics with the broom and dustpan. Yeah, yeah. I don't miss cleaning theaters at all. I miss finding money. Oh, That's about it. Yeah, yeah. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the director of Dying of the Light, Peter Flynn. After these brief messages. Let me ask you a question: Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of current, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. 
Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro Detroit area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features in a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, zip code 48201. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. My name is Peter Flynn, and I teach uh, film history, film production at Emerson College in Boston. Dying of the Light was not your first film. Can you tell me a little bit about Blazing the Trail? Well, Blazing the Trail started out as a book. I was writing this book on the Irish and early American cinema. And the research on that book, I came across this company in, based in New York called Kalem. And Kalem did something quite revolutionary when most filmmakers in 1910 were heading out west to Hollywood. You know, the filmmakers based largely in New York and Chicago. These guys went in the opposite direction and they went to Ireland. And between 1910 and 1914-15, they made a whole series of films shot in largely in the southwest of Ireland. And most of those films have been lost and those that survive have largely been forgotten. So, you know, as I was working on it, I, I realized this, this needs to be a film and not a book. And so I made a documentary film about the Calum Film Company. And that was my first, uh, my first film. Now, do you always get out of writing books by making movies? <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a lot less boring, the process, I'll tell you that. It's why write about film when you can make a film about film. And I, I think, you know, you could certainly have written a book on the history of film projection, but it's just such a cinematic subject. Uh, it seemed, again, a no-brainer that this should be a film. 
So when you went into the dying of the light, what was kind of the, your, your thesis statement? What kind of tipped you off to doing this whole project about projection? Yeah, I, you know, I think it was less a thesis statement than a mission statement. And the mission statement was record as much of this as possible before you can no longer record it, before it's not there. So capture as many voices, shoot in as many booths, record as much of the activity in the booth as you can, because it's not going to be around much longer. And the projectionists themselves, those, you know, those working career projectionists, they're, you know, sadly a dying breed. So it was really just this sense of urgency to capture as much as possible, to pull as much out of the burning house as possible. And when did you start the project? Three and a half, four years ago. You know, the thing with documentary is that, you know, you start production and pre-production on the same day as you're shooting your research. And, and um, at least for me, that is. And I was shooting without really fully understanding the scope of it. And just, I started in Boston and I started shooting and interviewing projectionists there. And of course, you know, you talk to one projectionist, they know another who knows another. And, uh, and so it kind of, it expanded out from, from Boston. Three and a half, four years later, here I am, the film film is done. So you started in 2012. Where was the state of projection at in 2012? When I started making the film, the major theater chains had converted over. So all the multiplexes, they had all gone to digital. And we were now in that kind of final stages of the wholesale conversion to digital, which was we were dealing with the small independent art house and the small mainstream non-chain theaters that were bearing the brunt now of this changeover. You know, many were in that process of trying to raise the funds to afford a $80,000 digital projector. Um, Many were making that transition quite easily due to funding. Others were really struggling and some were going, um, were going dark. So that's kind of, you know, when I started, that's, that was the state of the industry. As I shot more and explored more, I realized that the story didn't begin with digital. The story, you know, went much further back and then further back even more. You know, this process of converting to digital and emphasis on cost effectiveness and convenience over quality presentation. Well, you know, we can trace that back to the 60s, even earlier. Once we got to a point where we could begin automating the booth in the 1960s, that shift was beginning. So digital was just a final step in this evolution that was 50, more than 50 years in duration. And then, of course, once you get to that point, you have to address, well, what was being lost? What was the height of film presentation in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and even into the 60s? So uh, what started off as a look at what was going on in the industry here and now became this really this chronology of 120 years of film handling and presentation. I mean, you take us all the way back in Dying of the Light, all the way back to the Magic Lantern days. Yeah, yeah. Just to even show us that, and then just the idea of the man who stands at the back of the auditorium and has to physically crank that machine and have a steady pace to him as he plays back the film. It's just, I can't even imagine what revolution the motor for a projector must have been like. Right. Well, with, you know, yeah, in, in a sense, you have to go back to that moment, to the very origins, or even the, the, the prehistory to the Magic Lantern, where... 
it wasn't just the, the, the machine that was part of the, the attraction. It was the operator. It was what was on the screen, but it was also the mechanism, the magic of the lantern itself. And the, and the, the projectionist, the lanternist, they were all simultaneously part of the, of the amusement, of the entertainment value. And that persisted up into the early days of film, where this marvelous machine, magical machine of the projector, was part of the excitement and the thrill of the experience of the movies. But once you get to the point when storytelling becomes the dominant function or mode of film, then with that you have the necessity of the suspension of disbelief and the creation of a realistic world. So when you get to that moment, which is in the 1910s, the projectionist has to disappear. And all of this activity, once central to the entertainment, gets removed. And what's interesting now, 120 years later, as digital has taken over, film is becoming part of the, um, the entertainment value again. It's becoming part of the attraction. If you go to an art house theater that's screening film, they will advertise that on the marquee in 35 mil, in 70 millimeter. People want to see that again. Everything that's old is new again. We've come kind of full cycle in a way. And I, I think these things are magical and they are very beautiful. And, and so I think, yes, it goes back to the magic lantern. It's interesting that the line, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, is brought up not once but twice in the documentary. Yes, and many more times, too, by interviewees that simply didn't make it into the film or sections that didn't make it into the film. Time and again, the projectionists I interviewed would, would bring up that line and, you know, kind of implicitly, and not in an arrogant way, but implicitly linking themselves to that magician behind the curtain, to the great Wizard of Oz, or I suppose the not-so-great Wizard of Oz. Right? <laughs> he does turn out to be a charlatan in a way. <laughs> the sad little man. Yeah, that was certainly not the intention of the film. Um, but, you know, I think when the film works well in my books, it's when you do pull that curtain back and you, you see something of the, of the characters, of the people who devoted their, their lives and their careers to this profession. Tell me what it was like uh, finding these people. How open were they to talking? And, and who were some of the ones that really helped you out in this project? For people who have spent so much of their time hidden away in dark rooms and with uh, having earned a reputation as being somewhat odd or at least retiring and shy, that was not really the case. It was rarely the case, to be honest. I found them uh, to be very open, very warm, very friendly, very generous people. Many were thrilled and happy that somebody was had an interest in what they what what they were doing and and I think all without exception really understood the enormity of what was happening not just to themselves but to the profession as a whole so I think everybody really understood the the mission of the of the project the goals of the project and were on board with it from um, from the minute I you know they would pick up the phone and have a conversation with me. so I found them not just very willing subjects and very generous subjects, but they also, in many ways, became kind of co-makers of, of the film. And very early on, that became a part of the process of making it and, and of what was ultimately ending up on screen, which was uh, having these people involved in the investigation of this history with me. So, 
rarely do you find somebody who is simply sitting down and giving an interview. They're involved in some activity, uh, either helping me shoot or uh, helping me explore some of these old theaters and these old booths, performing some function and not simply projecting film, but in, you know, in some cases breaking the equipment down. Or in the midpoint of the film, we have a, a group of projectionists who come together and purely for the function and means of the film, revive an old projector that had been dormant for, for 40 years. So I think they were co-makers. What was that whole process like going into these old buildings? I mean, it, it, some of it looked, frankly, rather dangerous. I now, I cannot drive down a street without looking at a building that's somewhat old and wondering what's inside. And I don't think I did that before making this film. You become alert and aware of you know, what lies on the other side of the door or the other side of the fence. So to me, you know, when I, you know, the first kind of threshold that I crossed when making this film was simply going into the booth, that that was a mysterious, magical space that I'd never been to before. I never even considered much, to be honest. And with that came this idea of an archaeological exploration, that that's what it seemed to be going into these dark spaces. So it seemed to be a visual, a way to approach these spaces. And of course, since most of them were either facing, being closed or altered, uh, uh, irreversibly altered with digital, the idea of the abandoned, broken down boat seemed to me to be a perfect metaphor for the film as a whole. So whenever possible, I would try and seek out abandoned theaters and then go there with a projectionist and talk about what that space was like in better days. And it, it, was, it was, it was remarkable. These buildings just abandoned on the side of a road and you just drive, people drive by them every day and nobody bothers to peek in the dusty windows or, you know, in, in, in my case, just find somebody with the key and go in and explore. And, Yes, some were, were really in, in tragic states of disrepair and quite dangerous, rotting floorboards and so on. But to be honest, in most cases, these buildings were so beautifully built and so built to last that they could weather 30, 40 years of having been shuttered and, and still be quite safe. And there was one theater that we went into in, in Western Mass in Holyoke that had been shuttered since the 1970s. And there was not, uh, the wood was still solid. It was still, you could just, you know, you could take your cloth to it and clean it up and it would just look brand new. They were built so well. What was your experience like in Detroit? Oh, well, Detroit was, was, was up there for me. It was in terms of spaces. You know, I didn't, I didn't grow up in America. I grew up in Ireland. So we didn't have those, those picture palaces. We didn't really have that tradition. Uh, or, or drive-ins, for that matter. So those spaces were very exotic to me, and the, the glorious Michigan Theater, and it's still standing, and you can just look around and see traces of what it once was, and now it's something as mundane as a car park. And that's a perfect instance of these spaces so filled with history that people simply take for granted. Um, the projection booth in the Michigan Theater uh, had been untouched for uh, since the theater closed in the in the 70s in the late 1970s up until two three years ago 2013 when for the cameras we went in and we took out the projector film collector that i know went in and paid the owner of the building to essentially remove everything that had been in the booth 
and everything there was in pristine condition. I mean, you know, covered in a layer of dust, but exposed to the elements. There was no glass over the over the booth windows. That guy just packed up his van, drove home, got those machines working again in, in a fairly short time because, again, they, they were built to, to last and be beautiful. But people were using that space to park their cars. And just a little ways above them was this booth with equipment that dated back to the 19, to 1927 when the, or 26 when the, when the theater was built. Amazing. On IMDb, the film is listed as being a 2015 film, but if you were shooting all of this stuff about uh, the Hateful Eight, this must have locked right at the end of 2015. I mean, technically at this stage, it's a 2016 film because, yes, we the film premiered in, in New York 2015 in November of last year, but that wasn't complete and I still had to add on some additional little bits and pieces to update that Hateful Eight story. So the version that we're now releasing in theaters is, is I suppose, technically 2016. And I can still see myself adding little bits and pieces to this because I don't think, I don't think the story is over. The story of the transition to digital, that story has been told. But now in the immediate wake of that, there's this film reemerging as a special attraction uh, in the digital world. And The Hateful Eight was, uh, I think, the first real instance of that on a mass scale. Yes, it wasn't, it wasn't the box office success that people had hoped for, but I don't think it completely writes off the, the possibility of future engagements like that. Because although the film was not in, in total a box office success, in fact, it was, it was quite the opposite, the 70 mil road shows were, for the most part, very successful, especially in the art house theaters, who had a tradition of film presentation, of quality film presentation, and audiences that, that sought that out. So, so I think that keeps the door open for a very small, limited revival of film, and, and particularly 70 mil film. Yeah, I was very shocked when some of the theaters around here that said they were showing it in 70 millimeter. Uh, announced that they were showing it in 70 millimeter because these were some of the first places that switched over to digital. You know, it was in talking with the with the folks at Boston Light and Sound who essentially restored more than 100 projectors for theaters around the U.S. and they were, you know, largely multiplex theaters uh, as well as some art house independent theaters. The the biggest challenge for them, I don't think it was finding the parts or rebuilding or retrofitting uh, projectors. It was finding qualified operators to run the machinery uh, that within the last 20 years or so, we've, we haven't been training people to operate 70 mil for obvious reasons. It hasn't been around. But also when they got to the multiplexes and when they installed the projector and when they went looking to the immediate area, for qualified projections, they found that so many of the people were so embittered by how they'd been treated by the multiplexes, literally just let go of their jobs overnight and replaced by people with a fraction of their experience and pay scale, um, that many just simply refused to go and and go back to the theaters that had fired them. So, yeah, it's such a, it's, 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 it's not just the loss of film, it's the loss of people who know how to run film. 
When you really touch on that in Dying of the Light, the whole idea of these apprentices and how one man's film knowledge can be traced all the way back to those guys at the back of the theater with the hand crank projectors. You know, the booth is a, a really interesting place. It, it moves at a much slower pace than the rest of the world. Um, things don't become obsolete as quickly as they do in the everyday world. Um, people tend to hold their jobs longer than they do in, 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 the, in the outside world, at least up until recently, that is. And people maintain the connection with the older order more firmly than they tend to in the, in the outside world. You could go into most of the booths that are featured in the film and that I went and visited. You could walk in and you could find traces, techn- technology, traces of technology that went all the way back to the 1920s, even earlier. The technology was built upon the previous technology and so on and so forth. Nothing was scrapped, removed, and replaced. Everything was built on something else before. And, of course, that's how these guys were trained. They were trained by somebody who was older, who had more experience, and they worked alongside them in the booth for a number of months or years until they were qualified. Uh, And they, in turn, would do the same. So there's a, a very strong connection to the past, and I think in, in the booths, slower movement toward the future, if that, if that makes sense. Like I joke that there are sites of arrested development. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but things move slower in the booth. And you can maintain and nurture connections to the past that, 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 you, 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 that are quite difficult to maintain elsewhere in other walks of life. Um, yeah, and I find projections to be acutely... Uh, aware of that fact, like one of the reoccurring things that I found in Boots were uh, a framed photograph of the, the the original projectionist. The original chief projectionist would be there in a little little framed photograph, uh, right next to the rewind table or one of the projectors, and you know there's that honoring of the past, and I think that's a result of this tradition that was passed down from one person to the next. It wasn't something you learned in a boot. So you became very emotionally connected to what went before you. And I think in a sense that goes back to why people were so eager and willing to help in the making of this film, because the film was acknowledging that past and and they were very connected to it. And I love that two subjects that you have, where you have the apprentice and the the teacher there as well, and just their relationship. Bob and Amanda, yeah. The kidding back and forth and all this, it was just great. Yeah, and that seems to, I don't think that was unique. The mo- most people I talked to seem to have that a connection, uh, and in some cases, a very fatherly connection to the people who trained them, to the old timers. Uh, a great sense of camaraderie uh, across generations. You know, and I think that's, again, that's, that's kind of unique. And that's being lost. Because now, how do you learn it? You, you learn it by, you know, the Sony manual or the, you know, the Christie manuals to how to operate a digital project. And what is there to learn? You simply press a button for the most part. Yeah, it seems like it's moved much more into the IT realm. It's a technical IT position. It's no longer a craft. That's for sure. And you had that one uh, interviewee who was talking about how she would jerry-rig stuff and use 
paper clips and safety pins and all these things just to make the projector work. Yeah, and this is it. I mean, it's a, it's a it's such a steampunk operation, you know, and it's it's you jerry rig everything because the show has to go on. You can't just close down and wait for the spare part to get delivered. You have to figure out a way to keep it to keep the picture on screen. And for a lot of people, especially you know, the majority of career projectionists trained in rundown theaters or they trained in porn theaters where the quality of the projectors and the equipment was uh, a minimum. So they learned by fixing things. They learned by just keeping the picture on the screen. And I think they became very resourceful uh, and were able to cannibalize and hold on to spare parts and reuse them. It's not a million miles removed from the world of Mad Max, to be honest. And there's this wonderful, um, what I love so much about all of these people is that they have such love and affinity for the machinery that for most of their jobs and careers, it's them and the machine working together. So much so that they, they get to know this machinery intimately and, and, and feel for it in a personal way. It's this wonderful blending of the human and the machine, I think. Tell me a little bit about your crew. Who were some of the other people that worked on this project with you? I mean, for the most part, the crew was me. Simply, it was the film was self-funded. So, you know, it wasn't until the very end stages where I got a small grant to finish some of the post. So it was really coming out of my own pocket. And I would rally friends here and there to shoot when I had a, a an especially big shoot or a complicated shoot. But... For the most part, and this is the wonders of digital, for the most part, it was done by myself with two or three cameras in a backpack and a couple of tripods and, and a light kit. And, you know, digital equipment is so small, it's so lightweight, it's so portable and, and affordable that you can be that one-man band production outfit. You did your own cinematography and your own editing then as well with this. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's all the same job. And I think because I have always been a poor filmmaker, I've never had the luxury, and I don't even know if it's a luxury, to be honest, of uh, divvying out the roles to other people. To me, it's you shoot with the idea of editing in mind, and, and you can't edit unless you've shot the footage yourself so you know what you have. I don't know. It's just, it's all the same job to me. It's a very long job and a complicated job, and, and it takes, takes a long time to do. But it's all kind of the same same job, and I really enjoy it. And the, the different aspects of it um, complement one another very well. You know, you can you can you have to be very extroverted when you're out shooting, but then when you go back uh, and you're editing, you can kind of you know crawl in on yourself and be antisocial, and and then when you need to get out of that, you can go and shoot again. So I don't know. I I like all the aspects of it. And I don't know if I want to give them away, to be honest. I couldn't imagine anybody else editing what I've shot. Well, let me compliment you. The sequence that you do with uh, Sherlock Jr. and cutting that back and forth with the, the rest of the film, so good. Oh, so thank good. you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, those are little, you know, little jokes. And Sherlock Jr. looks out the, the porthole and he looks at the projectionist in the booth and they exchange a glance. Those are little jokes that for me, and I, I don't know if I don't, I generally don't think people get them. But, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's the little things that you do to amuse yourself because you spend so much time with the film, you know. 
And if other people get it, then it's a bonus. So thank you. That's nice. Do you feel guilty at all that this movie was digital and is just showing in digital projection? Yeah, you know, I don't. And I get it. I understand why people would, you know, why you'd ask that question and why in a lot of cases the reviews say, ironically, this film was shot on on digital. I mean, I get that. I understand it. But to me, it, it never, it was never an issue. It It's simply, this is how you would make this film. You couldn't make this film on film simply because you're shooting in such low light spaces, such cramped spaces, um, that you need small equipment and you need very light sensitive equipment and equipment that, that isn't going to take up the whole space. So it just, this is a digital film. It just happens to be about film. Uh, and I don't think it's any more I would than a book about a film or, you know, a poem about a tree. It's just one medium reflecting on a different medium or one, you know, technology reflecting on another technology. I don't inherently see that as ironic, though I understand it. And I don't think the film is anti-digital. I think it's very nostalgic and it's very, it, it certainly romanticizes the older analog film process. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's anti-digital because uh, I'm not anti-digital. I, I love this technology. Absolutely. I find shooting on film a pain in the neck. It's a nightmare. I'm trying to think of the last documentary I might have seen that was shot entirely on film. And I don't romanticize the look of film in the way that other people do. I mean, it looks great, but, you know, so can digital if it's shot well. We did shoot some film for this. And there's a little bit of it in the film because I was in, in an earlier cut. We did a comparison or I did a comparison between film and, and digital with the, with the intention of saying, hey, look at the difference and, you know, look at how bad our film is. But the fact of the matter was the digital was just as good and better in some cases, that the comparison wasn't working or it was kind of confusing things. So that ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, what are some of those things that did end up on the cutting room floor? I mean, you had so many years to make this film. I'm sure it just towers. Right. I mean, entire locations and entire people ended up on the cutting room floor and, and you feel terrible about it. and. I mean, entire trips, you know, I, I, I went to, I was in LA for an entire week and I would say, you know, five, six days shooting in a row, only one of those days made it into the film. All these other locations, for a variety of reasons, technical shooting in a booth can be very difficult in terms of sound because there's in a live booth in a booth that's operational. You've got all these air conditioners and so on, and it's very difficult to get good sound. Also, if the configuration of the booth is not right, it can be very difficult to just get a good picture because the spaces are so cramped and you're shooting, your spaces to shoot are so limited. But a lot of good stuff, you know, a lot of stuff that should have made it into the film didn't make it in, but a lot of good stuff too and some very nice interviews and interviewees. I did a, a lovely shoot with this guy who had two carbon arc projectors in his backyard in, a, in a, like a shed in his back garden. And it was a lovely shoot. He was a lovely guy. And I just couldn't find a space for it in the film. So hopefully the DVD extras will, you know, or they'll end up on, on the website or, or they'll be repurposed in some way. But yeah, a lot of stuff ended up on the cutting room floor. I guess that's, that's how these things go, you know. And the first cut was a half hour longer. I'm not surprised. I'm surprised it wasn't even longer than that. I want to go back to the end of the film a little bit because it feels like you're kind of 
playing with my emotions at the end of the film. Yeah. <laughs> We're going back and forth between basically the death of the old projection, but then you kind of bring us back with a little bit of hope with the 70 mil, but I'm not quite sure. Obviously, since you end with that title of how big of a failure the film was, it's like you're throttling me. Yeah, but you know, that's kind of how, that's how the film was evolving. I was shooting this film. I had edited this film. This time last summer, I had a completed cut of the film, but it didn't include any of the 70 mil stuff. So I had no idea how the how the uh, hateful eight was going to play out, and then we shot it and we put it in, and this was a month before the hateful eight opened. It was a very positive note, and then when you look at the film three months later, and the hateful eight has come and gone and received not the best press, not the best box office, and a lot of coverage about how the seventy mil didn't work, then that became a different story entirely. So it was difficult for me to modulate all those different endings and those different notes to end on. 70 mil comes in as this last minute deus ex machina that doesn't quite play out, right? And that's reality. And then there was that kind of difficult matter of juggling those who were optimistic for the future and excited by it, as people should be in many ways, and then those who were really nostalgic and bitter about the past. So I, I think it ends on a very bittersweet, maybe even ambiguous note, but I think that just reflects how these people were responding. Uh, they weren't responding uniformly and they, you know, had a variety of different, um, different feelings about their lives. And for some, it was the beginning of something new and for others, it was just the end of, of everything. So it was an attempt to try and justify balance and endorse all those views simultaneously. And then, you know, to end somewhat ironically, I suppose, with this older projectionist telling this younger projectionist to not romanticize the past, but to look forward and, and move ahead. And I thought that was a lovely note to end on. Now, speaking of reaction, how has the reaction been to the film? Um, very good. The press have been very, very positive in, in their reviews. Um, which has been great because, you know, you spend so long with a film, you've no idea how people are going to respond to it. So the press has been phenomenal. Audiences have been great. But, you know, it's still a niche film. and It's a small film. And it's, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to make that many waves. So I think looking at it for what it is, a niche documentary it's done and is doing extremely well and I, I couldn't be happier i really I'm, I'm thrilled that we've gotten this far with this many screenings with this good press and everything's a bonus i just wanted to make a good film and a uh, film that i felt was you know that did its subject justice and everything above and beyond that is is kind of a bonus the fact that i might not lose money on this is great but it wasn't why I made it, you know? What was your time like uh, coming to Detroit and showing this at the uh, Free Film Festival? It was great. Well, you know, film festivals are hit and miss. And, you know, it's become, the festival circuit has become such an industry. It has become so cynical. And that sometimes you can feel used and abused by it. Um, you can go into a city, you can go to a festival and you just feel completely, you know, you're, you're just like meat. You're just another product. And 
or you're you're you go to a festival and they 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 don't know the first thing about running a festival and everything's a disaster. There's no organization. Uh, and Freep was the opposite in every way. It was extremely well organized. People were very warm and welcoming and generous. And uh, and uh, just the level of organization, like having somebody moderate a Q and A, it's just that extra step. It makes such a difference. But it's an extra step that also requires a lot of organization, and and, um, and I was just I was really impressed with how smooth everything went off, and then with the audiences, and just having such great audiences, and to go to Detroit, I love Detroit. This was my second time there, and to kind of walk around the city, and oh yeah, I had a great time. I had a great time, but it was just a, a top notch festival. Yeah. And where's the film off to next? We're booking it theatrically now, and I know that in uh, a couple of weeks it, it runs in Arizona. It plays in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I have never been to Arizona. I have never been to Monument Valley, and I'm a huge John Wayne and John Ford fan. So I decided I am going to go to Arizona and to Monument Valley. I'll introduce the film when it's in Scottsdale, Arizona. So there's that. And then, you know, I'm, I'm finalizing a contract now with an international distributor. So we'll see where that takes the film. But between now and I suppose the fall or late fall when it goes to Blu-ray DVD, uh, the U.S. distributor First Run Features will, will be rolling it out theatrically and, you know, in, in smaller art house theaters. So, yeah, but, but Scottsdale, Arizona, that's, I'm excited about that. I've been wanting to go to Arizona for the exact same reason, yeah. to see Monument Valley. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll let you know what it's like. I'm, I'm really excited. I haven't traveled. You know, I, I've traveled, obviously, making this film, but I'm not a vacationer. I don't really feel the need to go on holidays. And over the years, people have said, well, Peter, if you could go, well, where in the U.S. would you go? And I've always said, without hesitation, Monument Valley. So I'm off to Monument Valley. And as I say this, I'm looking at a still, a framed photograph uh, on my wall here of uh, uh, Rio Grande for the Rio Grande. So. so where's the best place people can go to find out more about you and more about The Dying of the Light? Oh, well, the film's website, dyingofthelightfilm.com, uh, has everything I think you need to know about the film, where it's showing, and uh, some clips, a trailer, and various other bits and pieces. So dyingofthelightfilm.com. Do you ever have people who are disappointed that Nicolas Cage isn't in this movie? <laughs> you know, I was in production on this film long before I even heard of this Dying of the Light, uh, Paul Schrader film. And then it came out, you know, the news of it being made. And, and I thought, do I change the title? And frankly, I've never been able to come up with a title that I like better than Dying of the Light, even though it is kind of, you know, a downbeat, somber title. And I just said, ah, to hell with it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. And because uh, so, so, I love Paul Schrader, or at least, I, you know, the, all the early Paul Schrader. So it gets bad reviews, and I can only do better than it on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> so in a sense, I can, I can, only, I can only win by comparison, right, or, or come out favorable. <laughs> well, thank you so much. No, thank you. This was great. This was a lot of fun.
right, we're back and we're talking about Dying in the Light. Kind of, we're talking about Dying in the Light. We're, we're talking more projection stories than anything. Kind of reminiscing. Which is in the spirit of the film, so that works. It definitely is. Yeah, I can't imagine you know him making this movie for, what, four years and just the amount of footage he probably shot. And there's so many ways he could have gone with that, too. I yeah. mean, we're talking... You know, I mentioned like Cinerama earlier, and there was like you could spend God a, a, a college thesis or twelve talking about the presentation quote unquote gimmicks. Mm. You know, and we talked a little bit about 3D. You know, 3D wasn't brought up in the movie, but that was like one of these like, hey, we got to revive the theater somehow. Let's do this. Yeah, yeah, and that's happened twice in the life of. <laughs> Of cinemas. God, I mean, I was a little too young for Jaws 3D and Friday the 13th Part 3D and all those kind of things. But I was around when that last little bit of one of the Freddy movies, the Nightmare on Elm Street movie, was in 3D. And that caused so much heartache working at a theater. And these people would come out and they'd be like, something's wrong with the screen. And it's like... (laughs) We handed you 3D glasses on the way in. Also, and it's not like Nancy... Freddie doesn't even say, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like, yeah. okay, kids, time to put on your glasses. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I remember having to put stuff uh, like like disclaimers out for Grindhouse. Oh, God. Yeah. And, and at Grindhouse, the uh, Ultraviolet, a terrible Mila Jovovich movie. But that was terrible. I actually saw that one in the theater yeah, too. Yeah, I was really looking. The trailer made it look great, and I watched it. And I'm like, this is just empty. But I saw it like 12 times because I worked there. But right. that one, we got a lot of focus complaints. <laughs> I can see right why. because because like her eyes would be in focus, but her cheeks and mouth wouldn't be, and that was clearly because I played with focus through that whole movie for one whole screening, and. <laughs> It was clearly a, the the director's choice to force your focus exactly where he wants it. And um, when I explained that to a couple of college age guys, they're like, "That's stupid." I'm like, "I don't disagree, but that is, I said it is being projected properly." I just remember that, and a lot of these kind of I hate to use this term, but I will anyway. Made in a computer type movies. Okay. Yeah. Because there were a few of them, you know, like Cashner and then you know, Sky Marshall and the World of Tomorrow, yeah. or all these kind of things, where it just looks so soft or muddy, yeah. you know. Yeah. And uh and and that's still when I think back on some of those like Star Wars prequels, that's still kind of the the feeling that I get is when you get into the the effects sections of some of these films and. To your point earlier about you know showing something in a high frame rate that is a special effects heavy film, mm. it's just got to draw so much attention to the fakery. It's got to just push you into that uncanny valley so quickly. Yeah, yeah, because the whole point of doing the effects is to blend it into the film, and it's like when you go back and watch Jumanji now, it it looked amazing when we all first saw it on VHS or in the theater. But now, digitally remastered, it's like it's like a bad PlayStation One cutscene. But then, like Jurassic Park, still looks fine to me. I don't know if I'm a little more forgiving with that one, but well, film is very forgiving. Yeah, you know, and that's the one thing that I don't think has ever really made that transition into the digital world. Maybe it, it started to, and maybe it's there. But when I think back on things like seeing. 
Terminator 2 in the theater and just like, oh my God, this is amazing. And now I'll see it on television. <laughs> oh my God. When he walks out of the flames, is just all liquid metal and everything yeah. after that bridge chase. Just like, this looks like garbage. What is this? Yeah, but it was amazing in what, yeah. 92? Is that when it was? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was amazing in 92 because our expectations were different. I also think, though, that the whole idea of the green of the film and everything helped mask some of that stuff. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I I imagine Jim Cameron would slap me on the face if he heard me say that. (laughs) But, you know, I'm sorry, but you, you can get more digitally precise now in Avatar because you aren't blending real life with fantasy. Yeah. It's again talk about a movie made in a computer. That's a hundred percent, you know, other than those unobtainium scenes. <laughs> yeah. But that's they should where, have just called it MacGuffinite. Yes. And <laughs> been done with it. <laughs> but even when you took some of those actors and threw them into like, you know, the the big firing aliens type machines and stuff, I'm just like, wow, look at that computer animated guy from Manhunter there. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, my big, you know, back when I was, uh, you know, the pessimistic film critic, um, it was like, um, shouldn't Avatar be nominated for best animated feature? (laughs) And I would say that about movies I like too. (laughs) Yeah. If it's like 90% CG, you've made an animated film with humans in it. I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing. Just a, it's just a thing. I like these things that have come out, and I, I think that these were independent of the Hateful Eight stuff, but the art of projection kind of things, like obviously Dying of the Light is 100% focused on the art of projection. Yeah. But then there have been a couple like Vimeo movies that I've seen or Vimeo like clip shows kind of things where they will kind of either spot like like supercuts basically okay spotlighting projection booths in movies or actually talking about the magic of projection ah. and there was even one that was called pay attention to the man behind ah. the curtain yeah yeah and i like that that line comes up twice in peter's movie yeah and he's yeah and he says that that came up a lot more in conversation and that's the whole thing the hidden art of projection yeah and it's only hidden if you do your job properly. That's so you don't have a-holes yelling, focus! Yeah, yeah. the second you make a mistake, everybody knows where you are, and they, all the, the staff downstairs remembers you're working, and yeah, I can't tell you how all many times... walkie-talkies start going uh, off. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times um, I've, I've gone downstairs, because you generally get uh, a decent like half hour, 40 minutes um, between the seven and nines when you don't have to thread. And you go downstairs and everybody's like, oh, you're here. We ordered food and forgot to ask you because we didn't think anybody was upstairs. Who the hell do you think was running the shows? Did they order food or did they trade out for food? Oh, no, we had to order food. I Oh, really? Yeah, I worked in a, in a theater once that... We we traded passes. I didn't trade passes. The manager gave me passes to trade for food, um, and they were fired. And we all oh, wow. were fired. A lot of shady stuff went on at one of these theaters that I worked at that I was too low down on the totem pole to have influenced. But yeah, no, we had they um we did weekly pass counts and oh wow yeah because they knew that was standard operating procedure where I worked was. 
I'm really hungry. How about we order Olive Garden? Yeah. Okay, let's give those guys a call. Yeah, I'm not saying that with the the mini mozzarella bites and chicken tenders and and oh, yeah. buffalo wings that we had in the kitchen area of the concession stand, a lot of stuff may have been voided. Yes. But it was still accounted for. How stupid is this? We had, oh, so we had hot dogs and we had cookies. Yeah. You know, this is before like, you know, concession stands exploded into, you know, the mini marts they are today. Right. So those were the big items. Of, and of course the popcorn and candy, but candy was like the sacred cow. You know, you couldn't just steal candy. Right. That's, that's wrong. Yeah. But, it's, but popcorn, obviously, you know, no problem. But when it came to those goddamn hot dogs, they were so stingy about those. Here we have the managers trading out left and right for, you know, God knows what when it comes to, you know, gourmet lunches kind of thing. But if you touch one of those goddamn hot dogs, <laughs> <laughs> you you got some explaining to do. Yeah, you know? yeah. Frank and I were, were kind of lenient. Like, if it's the day before payday, because we know, you know, everybody gets paid crap there. Um, and you don't have any money for food. Don't pretend you accidentally cook too much stuff. Right. Just say, I'm starving. And we'll say, how much do you need? <laughs> because if you keep the employees, you know, happy, right. you know, if you say, oh, no, starve, they're going to fuck up some shit on you. But, yeah, we would have a couple employees here and there that would, um, like, an hour before closing, put six hot dogs on the roller. Oh, Jesus. And we're like, why did you do that? And they'd say, do you, do you want a hot dog? Because at the end of the night, you, you avoid them. And we're like, hey, yeah, actually, I would like a hot dog. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but you couldn't do that all the time. Eating those meals at 1130 at night also not the best diet for you yeah the hot dogs weren't that great so we we would like smother them with the with the nacho cheese and just anything to mask the flavor just and it was just enough food till you could get somewhere that had more edible food which for us was was the denny's across the street um that was featured in the heat by the way that was that's that was our Denny's that I've speaking of another Melissa McCarthy film. Yeah, I have thrown up on that set. <laughs> oh, and the worst part is it's it's supposed to be like a terrible part of Boston and it's just like suburban Danvers. It's like, come on. The Denny's isn't and then you see it on screen and it's like, oh yeah, it is that bad. That was one nice thing about the whole uh dying in the light is just all those theaters that I was familiar with after kind of touring around with the book and everything and going to like the Coolidge theater and this theater, the Brattle yeah. and all these kind of things. I'm just like, Oh, I know these theaters. This is kind of nice. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to remember the one that I went to in Rhode Island that actually had like a projection thing going on in the lobby. So you could see the film going on out there and stuff. You could see it, you know, kind of going through the mechanism. I don't think it was actually projecting it, Mm. you know, in the theater, Okay, but it was kind of a nice feature. I remember there was a theater around here. Um, what do they call them? An MJR that opened and it had, it was showing previews in the lobby and it would show them on, 35 oh, wow. and had a projector right there. It was in, encased in glass and it was up high so nobody could fuck with it. <laughs> but it would 
just show stuff right on the wall, like above the concession stand. So as you stood and waited for your concessions, you could just look up and see that. Now it's been replaced with a big screen and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. But but before it was, you know, hey, check it out. We are a theater. Here's the mechanism of this whole thing, kind of, you know, demystifying it a little bit, but also at the same time featuring it. I was like, oh, this is nice. Oh, that's neat. I, I'm hoping that when we get rid of our 7015, um, which is 70 millimeter film, but there's 15 sprocket holes, perforations down each side. I'm hoping that we can we can cut like a corner off of it to do a, a cutaway version, set that up in the lobby and just have a motor spin the rotor around so everybody can see how it used to be rather than just chucking the whole thing in the trash. Here's a, a tech nerd question for you. Mm. When it comes to the IMAX stuff, what's the frame rate on that? Oh, it's 24 frames a second. Yeah, but each frame is about two and a half inches, I think. So it's it's a little more than twice the speed of 35 running through. That's what I remember also from that documentary was talking about the need for the speed and how early models would kind of tear the shit out of the sprocket holes. <laughs> yeah, I can see that happening. Yeah. I know we were talking about the 48 frame stuff that Peter Jackson had done, but there were have been experiments with higher frame rates for years. I remember there was a, a movie called, oh God, what was it? Once by Mort Hellig. That was shot at a super high frame rate, mm. and unfortunately, you know, oh, I would love to see a copy of this movie, but obviously I'm not going to see it shown in that high frame rate. Right. And I remember hearing a story about Douglas Trumbull, who was working on some stuff, and now I don't know how much of this story is true or not, but I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> it was him and Spielberg in a theater, and he was showing this film and the film broke, and you could see these guys behind like the, the, the screen, and you could see their shadows, and they were doing this stuff. They were working behind the screen. And then um, I don't remember if the film started again or what it was, but basically Trumbull turns to Spielberg, and it was like, what do you think of the film? He's like, well, it was good until it broke. And he's like, no, no, this is still the film. The shadows and everything was part of the film. It just was it was you know a special effect and he had shot this stuff at such a high frame rate that it looked like real life basically going wow. on and i was just like really so again i don't know if that's true or not but i think trumbull was one of these guys who's also participating in high frame rate kind of stuff okay and you know the, it is supposed to get us closer to real life but at the same time we're talking about you know the magic of film basically hiding the corners kind of stuff, yeah. you know, munging the work so, so you don't see you know, all those details. So maybe we don't want the high frame rate when it comes to certain things until we can get a little better at stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Some 4K stuff looks really good, but I've only seen nature, landscape, cityscape right. kind of stuff, not anything with real acting. So yeah. not that it's not out there. I just, I, I haven't. I haven't seen that. We did have a trailer for um, the remake of Dawn of the Dead, and Ooh. we were all excited, and we, we went into the theater that it was on. I think the union was still running the show at that point. So there's like six or eight of us because, you know, zombie movie again, finally, <laughs> real horror movies instead of, you know, the what we considered the watered-down stuff up to that point through the 90s. And right. um, at, at what seems like 
the you know three quarter point of the trailer, the film burnt out. Oh jeez! And it was just a white screen. There was a flicker, and then you heard moaning, and shapes came up to the screen. Oh Jesus! And the zombies were trying to come through the screen, and that probably scared us as projectionists more than it scared the audience because wow. the film broke out oh, crap this is such a oh you son of a bitch <laughs> it was it was one of my favorite trailers because it fooled all of us and it was it just it looked so real <laughs> right that's one of the things that i don't know if people are going to get 20 years hence or whatever are some of the film jokes yeah like obviously gremlins 2 comes immediately to mind right but when i i think about you know like hell's a poppin and stuff or even some of the old warner brothers cartoons like where there'll be the hair on the screen (laughs) yeah bugs bunny reaches down and pulls that out or whatever you know some of those things like even when the the film starts to go you know starts to shake out of the sprockets in fight club and stuff <laughs> it's like you know even even now that tyler durden points out the cigarette burn and everything yeah it's like we don't see those anymore no you know when i'm watching an old movie sure but yeah. when i watch something new yeah yeah try to try to find one of those in a pixar film yeah the funny thing is though i mean you watch enough movies you build enough prints and you can actually, on a movie you've never seen before, I've sat there with my wife. I'm like, I'm going to do something really annoying while we watch this. And she said, well, what else is new? I said, shut Every time a scene would change and it felt right, it was uh, that's where the splice would be. <laughs> that's where the – because you can almost tell because it generally changes not just the shot, but typically the scene changes unless it's something like – like you said before, like Hateful Eight, where it's all in the one place. But yeah, you can still tell even even on digital prints, they're still structured that way in a, in a weird way. Now you're talking about Grindhouse, and I know a lot of people had problems with Grindhouse as far as like getting up at the end and leaving after the first movie. Yeah, I don't think we had too much of that. We did have a lot of complaints about there being scratches. <laughs> so being the proactive person that I am... I typed up this thing, put it at the box office, put it near the theater, just a sign that said Grindhouse is supposed to look like a se- it was made in the 70s and it's been run through projectors at midnight for decades. There will be scratches. It, it will look weird. It will look like we don't know what we're doing. This is how it's supposed to look. Once we put those signs up, everybody was kind of cool with it. That was one thing that I thought, and I've probably brought this up on a show before, but I don't care. I'll still say it. I thought that Rodriguez really handled that well. Yes. And, and you know, utilized the whole idea of the the missing footage. Mm-hmm. You know, there was the, the there was a reel that was gone. Yeah. And it was super exciting stuff and all this. And it, and it was an actual twenty minute chunk. It felt yes. Like. Yeah. Yes. And that, and I could be wrong. I could just be remembering this the way that I want to remember, but it felt like as the movie's going along, it felt like things would get really scratchy and then, you know, have a quote unquote real change and then go to the next thing and it would be scratchy and then clear up a little bit like a real film would. Yeah. Yeah. And that the head and tail should be a little more scratched up. Exactly. But when, but when it came to Tarantino's thing, I think there was some scratches at the beginning and then it stopped. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
And then I there was a definitely noticed that. Okay, good. So it wasn't just me. No, because I, I, I mean, the main problem that that had, I think, is that Tarantino's was second. So you had right. the comparison of this has been played theoretically for, for 25, 30 years. And it's like Tarantino's was shown first run, maybe second run, and then put in a collection and brought out. There were some black lines. There was some dust. There was a, there was a real missing that was like four minutes. Right. And right. All, it was, it was all of all the, the entire projection crew was, was, was in there. Cause you know, it was an event. It was a, it was a double feature. We, we all yeah. wanted to check that out. And I think no, they were, they were like 12 of us in there and no less than four of us yelled out. That wasn't a whole reel. Yeah. It was basically like the kiss was missing. Yeah. And you could have just had a really terrible cut and that would have been fine. But yeah, walking out of it, we pretty much all agreed that 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 his ego wouldn't allow the image to look worse than it than it could. And Rodriguez, I think, is the kind of person that's more about the full experience. Like if we're going to call this Grindhouse, it's got to look terrible. And he captured that so well in the Machete preview. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that looked terrible in a great way. It really did. And just you know, even the end when it like cuts off and everything and kind of doing that, that preview thing that you were talking about, you know, abrupt cut in, yeah. and abrupt cut out. Yeah, because you've had to use the same snipe <laughs> for, yes. for 10 years. So you lose yeah. a frame at the beginning and end every, you know, six months. We had a theater around here called The Showboat where I, when I was growing up, that was the theater that I would go to. Probably the most because it was within walking distance of where my parents, when they had a business, it was within walking distance of that. Hell, it was within walking distance of my house. And when by the time I got to high school, they had switched from, well, I guess they were doing first-run films. They were just doing first-run movies of things that I don't generally think of as even having theatrical runs. Oh, you know, okay. like uh, it came from Hollywood or Ice Pirates. <laughs> Ice and, Pirates, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Heartbeats, things like that, yep, you know. Yep. But but by the time I'm in high school, it's like the happening place to go to. So if you're going to go see oh, Satisfaction with Justine Bateman, like that's <laughs> the place where you're going to go see it. They got a copy of Dirty Dancing, and they just ran the shit out of this movie. So much so that like it ran for probably a year. And I had heard a story, and this is probably way exaggerated, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> I heard a story that when the print left the house, it was like 20 minutes shorter than when it went in <laughs> because of all the breaks and splices. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah, yeah, because they, oh, yeah, th I mean, that was their bread and butter oh. for, like, a, a full year, every Friday and Saturday night, everybody going to see fucking Dirty Dancing. <laughs> and Ghost was almost the same way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great date movies. Yeah. Nothing better than watching, the, uh, you know, somebody die of an abortion in the 50s. <laughs> That's not grim. No, not at all. <laughs> And then they took the baby and they put it in the corner, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that was weird. <laughs> this totemistic thing. Was that a David Lynch I film? was going to say, are we talking about Eraserhead now? Oh, you are sick. <laughs>
Yeah, maybe maybe Tarantino is making an homage to Cinema Paradiso by cutting out the kiss hmm. from uh, Death Proof. Hmm. Maybe. I doubt it, yeah. though. I don't know. Chris, what have you been up to lately? Training projectionists. <laughs> Ironically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've had we've had uh, some turnover, not not in a bad way turnover, mm-hmm. but we've had some, and then you know training some replacements, and we have a 4D theater at the museum now, so that's a whole nother challenge. Now 4D, so there's width, height, depth, and then time is the fourth dimension. Yes, the movie takes uh, a few minutes. Okay, uh, no, um, this is. Um, the fourth dimension for this is supposed to be, it's supposed to engage your senses more than just sight and sound. So it's smell Odorama. and touch. And yeah, actually we have, um, very powerful scent packs. So when we show polar express, which is not my favorite movie, but it's still better than Santa versus the snowman. Please don't look that up on YouTube. Anyone. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. And that's saying something. Wasn't that a, uh, a Trey Parker joint? <laughs> I don't know. Victoria Jackson and what's his name there? Ben Stein do voices in it. Man, as soon as you said Victoria Jackson, my crazy meter went off. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, just like a Ghostbuster, right? So, uh, it's hot chocolate and a, and a pine tree scent for, um, Polar Express. And then there's fake snow, which is made from a soap solution. So it floats through the air really nice, but then disappears. So there's no vacuuming up afterward. If we're, like if we use like movies, do like potato flakes or something. And then bubbles, the seats have air jets. There's a water jet uh, air behind the, the neck. And then a, uh, they call it a leg tickler, but I call them leg whips. They whip around and they, they hit you in the ankles. And it's not enough to hurt you unless... You're older and you have uh, tissue paper thin skin. Then it then it <laughs> does hurt. And I'm not making fun of anybody, but it seems like the complaints are generally uh, older members of the audience, which is fair. I mean, I don't want to get whipped by a vinyl tube, you know, maintaining all of that. And then two digital projectors and learning an entire new sound system and and all kinds of stuff it's been uh kind of a challenge for the last year and a half but it's it's nice because now i know way more than when i ever first you know (laughs) threaded my first projector (laughs) (laughs) that and then watching terrible movies with bill on outside the cinema you're still doing are you serious as well yeah i wish i could release the shows on time Uh. um i have two as of today that I'm going to release as a double episode because I just, I just, I've been busy. (laughs) I haven't had time to edit that, but yeah, with, with everything going on, we've generally been talking entertainment because the rest of things going on in the world is kind of like, what? Uh, And we have nothing. We have, we cannot form words to adequately discuss things in the news on that show. So yeah, which is usually your bread and butter. Yeah. Yeah. But there's no rhyme or reason to any of it. So we're just going to wait until the primaries are over and yeah. then go from there. I keep saying to people that, and I don't know if people think that I'm serious or not. Maybe I am. <laughs> maybe I'm not. But I keep saying that Trump is the president that America deserves. Mm, well, part of America, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not my America. No. No. Now, if there could be a, a, a president for um, basically the red states. <laughs> yeah that would be that would be okay 
I don't know. Whatever happens, it's going to be interesting. Oh, yeah. Sparks will fly. Yeah. Yeah. I've been sharpening the spikes on my Road Warrior armor. Very nice. Yep. I bought a bicycle because that doesn't need gasoline. And mm-hmm. <laughs> you should get one of those razor sharp uh, boomerangs. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm left handed, so it wouldn't work. Oh. I can teach both my kids, though. Maybe get the assless chaps. Oh, I already have those. There you go. <laughs> you and Wes. <laughs> So I know April was Crazian month yeah. on, uh, outside the cinema. Yep. Crazy Asian films. And, oh, he picked, he picked some good ones. Like I didn't think I was going to, I thought I was going to quit the show this month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's saying something. And even Bill was like, is this month over yet? I'm like, you picked these. What are you talking about? He's like, I know I made some mistakes, but they, but it, I, hopefully it makes for good listening. I mean, it's really, you know, when it comes down to it, each one's two hours out of my week. So a lot of it I can forget <laughs> when I'm done with it. But as long as people enjoy it, that's 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 the fun part. Yeah, that's the thing that I don't think a lot of listeners realize that once a show is done in the can, out in the air, however you want to put it, mm. you just kind of throw it away sometimes, you know, yeah. lock that piece of your brain someplace else. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff on both the shows I do it's all just stream of consciousness like discussion and people will, will write back in and I may remember what I said and what context, or they'll start discussing things on Facebook in the group. And I'm like, can you guys refresh my memory? And I feel dumb, but like, I'm not going to remember a conversation I had a week later, unless it has to do with, uh, the raise that I deserve. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. Something. And you've been doing this show for five years now? Which one? Uh, outside the cinema? I No, that's been... How old are my kids? My kids are... How old are my kids? <laughs> oh, that's right. More like seven years. I've been doing mine for five years. You've got to have been doing yours for seven or eight years. Yeah, I've been doing, I've been doing Are You Serious since September of 2008. Bill started outside the cinema in February of 2008. And then I got onto outside the cinema episode 56. So a year and, and, and a month after. Oh yeah. That's right. You're the new guy. Yeah. Yeah. For seven years. (laughs) (laughs) I was so bad for Rob. Rob was the new guy for like four years. I looked back and I was like, you know, Justin was only on like 30 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There comes a point where it's like, okay, that other thing just did, that didn't happen. And that's, that's pretty much how Bill is. You get people asking you about like something in, in yeah, episode 57 or 58. It's just like, uh, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember at least one of the movies we did on the first show I was on, but after that, I have to sometimes look up the poster or read yeah. the synopsis to like, you know, did I, did we do this mediocre direct to video eighties movie? Did I really talk about Evil Clutch? Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't remember a thing about it, but yeah. That one I remember, sadly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rob is still proud of that one. <laughs> uh, so where's the best p- place for people to uh, catch up with you and, and find out all the haps on what you're doing? Um, well, my very boring life can be found on Facebook. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Are You Serious is the group for the Are You Serious podcast, which I am hoping to get back on schedule. Outside the cinema, we stream live every Wednesday 
and links are always always put up uh, in the Facebook group. And you know, I don't mind what I I like it when people friend me personally because then, like, I know who they are. Because you can sign up for the group and then just disappear. And I I might remember seeing your name from adding it, but I I like to get to know everybody because you know I'm trying to work on my social anxiety. So <laughs> I'm trying to broaden my horizons and reach out. Right. Yeah, you got to work on those social skills. Yeah. Yeah. And funny thing is, I'm okay in front of a microphone, like with Bill across from me. But when it comes to responding to a message to somebody I've only spoken to once, like I get all tense and I don't know what to say. And it's weird. I have, I, I, I'm, you know, I have medicine and it's helping, but it's, but it really is. It can be, it can make me look like an asshole sometimes when I don't reply to somebody because I don't know what to say. And then if it's like three days later, has it been too long? And then that's a whole other thing. Yeah, thank God for Celexa. I forget what I'm taking. It's right here. What am I taking? Sertraline, which I think is a generic Zoloft. So that's good. And sometimes I just don't even, like, I don't have Messenger on my phone, I think, or, or the iPad. One of the two. So, like, I don't always see the messages that people send, as you would know, because it takes me forever to answer you sometimes. I'm just going to PM you my um my cell number, and you can just text me. All right. All right. Be, I think I might have it. I'm not yeah, sure. Maybe. But that would be way easier because I, I definitely respond to texts. I don't always have Facebook open. I shut messages off. I mean, uh, notifications off because, like, I, I sit in meetings sometimes and with VPs, I got I to gotta impress, you know. <laughs> I can't be like, hold on. Somebody wants to know how did RoboGeisha end? I'm like, no, I'm meeting with the VP of my department. Give me a break. Yeah, and and if they message through like the Facebook group, mm. I've actually turned on the auto message thing, ah. and it's just like, don't message me here. This sucks. It's a terrible thing. I've, like I've never checked that. I should oh, probably do. Is, I didn't even know that was a thing. Bad. Yeah, I can't remember if it's for the. I think it's for the page and not the group. And you, I think outside the cinema is more the group and not the page. Right, but Bill, I know has been experimenting with streaming directly to Facebook and that can only be done through the page. Okay. So we're actually going to start using that. I think a little bit more, maybe who knows, but yeah, the messenger feature on there is just shit. Like it'll tell you, you have a message and then you go in and you click on it and you're just like, I don't see a message. (laughs) And then it's like, you know, refresh, refresh, refresh. And every once in a while, like it might show up on the left-hand side Uh and maybe it won't. And then, Okay, let me check my phone. Oh, I can see it from my phone, but I can't see it from the actual goddamn website. It's like, what? I've had a couple of friend requests come through in the last week, and it says it's there, and I remember the name, and then I go into the app, and it it says there there's no requests. I'm like, yeah, I know, story of my life, no friends. I get a computer, but then it like doesn't show up. It's like, did they did they take it back? What's going on? Well, you might be, because lately I've been getting tons of friend requests, and it's always from these very pretty girls. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) And then you click on the profile just to make sure it's not a bot, and it says, um, you know, Sherry Moon changed his profile picture. Right. It's like, oh, okay, great. And you have two pictures. One's a landscape. One's an Asian girl. Your name's Joanne Simpson. And it says you're a he. And while I'm all for doing whatever is your thing, you're 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 gonna spam me about sunglasses. Exactly. 
I hear you like Oakley's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. Check out these Ray-Bans, Chris. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yep. I, I probably report a photo every single day. Huh? You know, or or a user to just be like, yeah, th- this is fake. Because I'll see people that, you know, usually if I'm friends with somebody who is popular, they get tagged for like Ray-Bans or something. Uh, yeah. It's just like, yeah. oh, hey, Clint Howard is tagged in this Ray-Ban picture. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I really don't think so. Yeah. 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 I don't think Clint's interested in these. And oh, look at you tagged fifty other people in this photo. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I'm just not popular enough to be tagged in photos, which is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fine with that. With me, yeah. Well, Chris, thank you for coming on this special episode of the Projection Booth. I appreciate it. I I, I am always honored to be on a uh, non sequitur episode. <laughs> yeah, this is. <laughs> Probably the most free form episode we've ever had. Yeah, but that's our Peter. Peter, I know when it's all edited together, Peter has just brought it back right to the center of what the what the show's supposed to be about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of confused people at the screening when I got up there and introduced myself as Mike White from the projection booth, and then <laughs> and they're just like, "What?" <laughs> And then all these people are asking me questions, and I'm like, I had nothing to do with making oh. this movie. It's this gentleman right here. Oh, that's funny. I'm just here to ask questions and try to keep you people from being too weird, because that guy right there just wants to talk. He's very lonely. I can tell. <laughs> he's, he pretends like he's got a question, but I know he just wants to tell us a reminiscence mm. of something that happened to him in 1975 that no one's going to care about. Yeah. What, what he needs to do is start a podcast <laughs> and then be able to share those reminiscences for two hours. Yep. And that's how you do it. Yeah. 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 Podcasting can, I, I joke with Frank all the time. I'm like, you know, doctor said I should do therapy along with the medication, but, uh, I have this podcast and I can say pretty much whatever I want and I feel better after it. It's pretty good. I don't care if anybody listens anymore. <laughs> I have friends online. And I have friends in real life, and I talk to people, and that's that's good enough for me. Well, I will be sure to link to Outside the Cinema and Are You Serious over via the website projection-booth.com. I would encourage everybody within the sound of my voice to definitely go on over to iTunes, subscribe to both those podcasts, and hey, while you're there... Go on over to the projection booth where you can rate and review the show, because every time you rate and review the show... You are saving a life. No. <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, you're you saving had a life. They were believing you. Yes. Yeah, why not? I'll just fade out after I say no. Well, you can't prove that's not happening. That's, yeah. <laughs> Try and prove it. Well, I, I would imagine, though, for every review you get, that is one less person on your hit list. People to kill. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then I put the lipstick on. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm glad I rated and, rated and reviewed that guy. <laughs> uh, One of the few times I will make an Adam Sandler reference on this show. Yeah. But, yeah, but that's more of a Steve Buscemi reference, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I would like to think so. <laughs> yep. All right. I'm going to go watch some um, Project Runway now. All right. I'm going to try and uh, advance at least 10 minutes through more of Alien Isolation. Oh, good luck. Yeah. Yeah, I've been playing that game for a year. 
Wow. <laughs> I don't do stealth well, I'll tell you that. <laughs> oh, the android turned its back. I'm going to run full speed. Oh, it can hear me. Crap, I forgot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's still fun, though. <laughs> <laughs> all right great talking with you i'm glad we were able to do this yeah yeah this was fun cool all right i will talk to you soon sir. okay all right take care all right, you too bye-bye Bye. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.